Let's open our Bibles to start in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This chapter ends with this verse, and the first word occurs because the apostle has compared our human earthly marriages to the marriage, to the union, to the relationship of Christ and His church. And for the final verse, he jumps back to considering only our earthly marriages. Verse 33 of Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. And so Paul concludes a number of verses here, 12 of them, about marriage. We have just studied the epistle to the Ephesians for the month of January. Let's flip back a few pages and look at that first chapter and remind us of where we were during the month of January. Paul's opening about salvation in Ephesians from the third verse of the first chapter to the tenth verse of the second chapter is indeed glorious. And we enjoyed and rejoiced in the great salvation that we have in God. Beginning with our being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, our predestination to the adoption of sons, Jesus Christ's redemption, being made acceptable in the Beloved, His prudence and wisdom shown to us in salvation, our eternal inheritance to which we are predestinated, and so on and so forth. We had regeneration alluded to in the last part of chapter 1 and specifically described in the first few verses of chapter 2, bringing us to the 10th verse of chapter 2. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The effect of salvation will get us all to heaven. But the effect of salvation also is for us to be filled with good works that God has ordained for us to walk in. And some of those good works are how we treat our spouse in marriage. We are truly His workmanship. He has changed us from the natural men that are described in verses 1-3 through by His powerful grace in regenerating, in quickening us. But it's for a purpose. He's worked in us. He's recreated us in Christ Jesus unto good works. And He's ordained those good works for us. He's ordained how we should treat our spouse. Let's do that. Let's fulfill our salvation and the purpose of it. So though we spent that whole month rejoicing in the doctrine of salvation taught in those two chapters, it came around by the 10th verse where we are doing something. And that is we are living out what He's put in us. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and we should be working that salvation out with fear and trembling. And that includes 
our marriages. Now, Ephesians, being one of Paul's writings, has three chapters of doctrine and three chapters of our application or practice of it. And the change is very obvious in this epistle because the change is between chapters 3 and 4. Look at the last verse of chapter 3. The apostle is closing down three chapters of God's work of grace toward us. And he says in that last verse of these three chapters of doctrinal truth, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So that amen sets a close to the first half of the epistle. The second half of the epistle starts up differently. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We were elected, predestinated, regenerated, quickened, and called by the gospel to be the sons of God. That is our vocation. Our calling in life, our vocation is to be a son of God. And so there's a transition in this epistle from what God has done for us to what we should be doing for the Lord. And that is why the therefore is there to open that fourth chapter. I therefore, based on everything God has done for you, here's what you ought to be doing for Him. When we come to chapter 5, look at the first verse. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Let's be God's dear children by following Him in doing things His way. And that's going to apply to marriage as well. Because here in this chapter, when we get to verse 22, it addresses wives. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves. Then it says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Then the apostle draws a comparison from our earthly marriage to our relationship to Christ, and he closes with that 33rd verse. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So, the man should love his wife? We were ordained to it. We were saved to do it. The dear children of God will do it. If you truly want to revel in the election and predestination of chapter 1, you should revel in the application and the working out of God's salvation in chapter 5. And the wife should reverence her husband. Reverence is not an option nor a suggestion. A wife should reverence her husband. Scripture is connected. Your marriage determines God's loving favor and presence in your life. We just sang some wonderful words about let me freely take of thee, about the Lord Jesus Christ. We can only freely take of him if we are keeping his commandments. If we keep his commandments and abide in him, whatsoever we shall ask, we shall receive. And like I've tried to say to you the last couple of weeks from John 14, we will get to it in detail, but it says, if you love me and you keep my commandments, my Father and I will love you, and we will come to you, and we will make our abode with you. I want to tie it all together. John, Ephesians, marriage. 
It's all the one word of God. It all comes together. If you want the blessing of God's presence in your life, you better have a perfect marriage. Why would you settle for anything less? Why would you want anything different? He blesses those who love their spouses. The method should be preaching God's word. I'm not going to tell you how to make valentines. We don't even believe in Valentine's Day, that Roman Catholic, Roman pagan holiday. I'm just going to preach God's word. I'm going to read it distinctly, give the sense, and cause you to understand it. I hope to be positive, uplifting, encouraging, and motivating to a church with overall decent marriages. The detail work is done at men's meetings and women's meetings, not in the pulpit in God's house. We don't have to do it that way. So um, I'm not here with a big hammer or a sledgehammer. I'm here excited that God created marriage. It was not good for the man to be alone. I've been alone in my life where I thought I was the most miserable person on earth. And I'm so thankful for my wife. And I hope you're thankful for your wives. I hope you're thankful for your husbands. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord's done. If it isn't wonderful to you, if it doesn't fill you with joy and your heart with gladness, it's your fault. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake in the institution. He didn't make a mistake in the providence that brought you together with the one that is your spouse. You are doing something wrong fundamentally in your marriage. It's a wonderful blessing to have it. And I want to glorify God for it. It is so crazy good. You know, when I look out on the audience here and I see other women, you know, even though they're close to me as sisters, and I love them as sisters, they are nothing like one sitting on your right up here in the front row. The Lord took a little boy, and the Lord took a little girl, slammed us together, and we do all kinds of things together that we don't do with anyone else. And I'm not just speaking about bed. We do everything together. It's a wonderful thing. I have someone committed to me. She has someone committed to her. And life is a blast. Filled with fun and love. And some hard work. But having her makes the work so much easier. Because two are better than one. And the first reason is they get to share reward for their labor. And Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 that to enjoy your labor with your wife and to cheerfully enjoy the wife of your youth is one of God's blessings under the sun. You know, we mess things up under the sun, but thanks be to God, He preserved marriage and it still serves a wonderful purpose. So, I don't have a heavy hammer. I just know that God will bless us more because His Word tells me so. The more we love our spouses. You're going to be better for it. The church is going to be better for it. Your children are going to be better for it. And the Lord will bless us more because of it. So we'll take a few weeks and we'll see what the Bible has to say about marriage. And we won't talk about making valentines and we won't get into what couples retreats are for and we won't get into men's meetings and ladies' meetings so much. We'll get into the Word of God and what it says and we'll humble ourselves before some very plain things that God has to say about marriage. What? Look at the setting we're in. This is 2016 in America. A sick society. Corrupted marriage more than ever before. Most sex occurs outside marriage. as casual sex. 
with looser females than ever. Current stats, 50% of first marriages end up in divorce. 67% of second marriages end up in divorce. Those stats have actually come down since the 70s. Do you know why? Because America's getting better? No, they just don't get married the first time. So the stats come down. Because it's America in 2016. We've already confessed the sins of this wicked nation. In our prayers just a few minutes ago, the acceptance and protection of same-sex marriages indicate a bankrupt society that can't even figure out what animals know. Manny Pacquiao in the Philippines. That was a sermon. Animals know. It's amazing. Go get yourself an education in an American institution and you can't even figure out human anatomy or, hu or human sex. You can't figure out who you're supposed to be with and where things fit. We're in a sick society. That's the setting. And do you know what we get to do? We get to contend against it by showing how great opposite-sex marriages work. If your opposite-sex marriage isn't working right, that's your fault. God didn't make a mistake. There's less common sense and fundamental morality in love, sex, and marriage than ever before. Lord, help us. Perilous times mean most Christians have compromised marriage, love, and sex. You have an opportunity to follow God's rules and maximize marital pleasure for two people. You can contend with the wicked, shut the mouths of gainsayers, and adorn the gospel. Let's have the best marriages we can. Let's love each other. The Lord sees it. The Lord goes into your bedroom. Did you, did you, Satan goes into your bedroom. Did you see from 1 Corinthians 7-5 recently, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency? Satan knows how often you have sex, and so does God. He's, God says don't defraud. God says you don't have the authority and right over your own body to defraud your spouse. And he warns about Satan knowing about it and tempting you for your incontinency. I'm just reading 1 Corinthians 7 and trying to apply it for us. So the Lord looks into our marriages and the devil's able to get a way into our lives. We don't want to give him place. And we want the Lord to bless us. The duty. You know, the Lord's told us so much. He's not silent about marriage. He invented it and he gave us all the rules for it. He has rules, descriptions, and warnings about marriage. Each married person's going to give a full account to God how you've behaved in your marriage. He's going to take you apart. You're not going to snow him. You're not going to excuse him. You're not going to justify yourself. You're going to give an answer. Let's be able to give a great answer. Lord, thank you for the little girl you gave me who's still a little girl in many ways. In all the ways that count. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is given unto you, and ye are not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Each of us owes God everything we do in body and spirit because He made us and because He saved us. He created us and He bought us. But there's another person living with you. Now, if we're supposed to know that we're not our own, they are really not our own, though she's my wife. She's my wife. But if I'm not my own, she is really not my own. She's the Lord's. And I want us to keep that in mind. 
how much more your spouse is not your own, but a gift from God to you. God's gift of the Holy Spirit to us has given us all the power that we need to do everything the way God wants us to do it, to maximize the pleasure and profit and glory of opposite-sex marriage. Our whole duty is to fear God and keep His commandments. It's the conclusion of the whole thing. Higher ground for you, higher ground for your family, higher ground for our church depends on us and this righteous relationship. It's a blessing. Look at Ecclesiastes now with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. What a blessing it is. We'll never get past Genesis 2.18 where God said it is not good for the man to be alone. That is hard to appreciate because Adam had God. There was no sin in the world. He could freely eat of every tree of the garden. He barely had to work. All he did was dress and keep up the garden a little. God would come and talk to him in the cool of the evening, but that was not good enough. I love my Bible. But don't leave me alone with it. I love sharing the Bible with her. I love sharing the things that the Lord shows us together, but we, the Lord said it wasn't good. And I believe Him. I know it from fact, but the Bible says it, and that's better yet. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. Drink thy wine with a merry heart. That's not because the wine's making you merry. That's because you're choosing to be merry before you get to the wine. It's a choice. Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. And drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest, all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest, neither is there a wife in the grave. This passage tells us, and I did preach through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, that life is short. Life is too short to waste a single day. If you're not totally happy with your spouse, you're wasting the gift of God's life for you here in this world. Marriage adds so much to it. This is our portion under the sun, and it should be done joyfully. To have a companion, a friend, a lover, committed. I'm never alone. She's in bed with me. Breakfast together. Everything together. Talking about each of you together. Sharing God's Word together. It's a wonderful blessing. And the Lord tells us, enjoy it. Live joyfully. Are you all living joyfully? Or are you barely living? Or are you living sad? Or are you living discontented? Are you living miserably? Live joyfully. With the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. Because it is vain living down here in this world. We're all going to die. But he's given us this gift under the sun all the days of our vanity. It's our portion in life and it, it helps with our labor. We get to share it. I've said these things so many times I can't remember when I'm repeating myself sometimes. 
But a meal without sharing it with someone is a loss. And to share it with your wife, everything becomes better when you get to share it with your wife. It's a blessing God gave to us. A good wife is a blessing from the Lord. A good wife, I said. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. You know it. You should know it. Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. We understand elliptically that there is a thought, concept, or word missing from the first half of that verse. Proverbs 18, 22. It has to be, Whoso findeth a good wife, or whoso findeth a virtuous wife, findeth a good thing, because... This same book of Proverbs teaches that having an odious wife is not a good thing. It is a terrible thing, and for that the earth is disquieted because there are four things that human existence on planet earth cannot stand. And one of them is an odious woman when she is married. So that can't be in this verse. This is a good wife. When a man gets himself a good wife, he has found a good thing and the Lord has favored him. Proverbs 19.14, House and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now see, in that case, it just doesn't say, and a wife is from the Lord. It, there's no ellipsis here. It sticks in the word prudent as the adjective of wife to tell us this is a good woman. Two married believers in a church. Anything short of joy is folly or rebellion. Period. Get over yourself. Get over it. Confess it to God. Confess it to your spouse. Two believers in a church where the truth is taught, there ought to be great joy. Sherry and I have long believed, since we were teenagers, still believe it. I base it on God's Word. Two people shove together. They both fear God. Their parents fear God and help them scripturally. And they're in a church that preaches the whole counsel of God can have a great marriage. Because they both fear God. They're going to treat each other the way God expects them to treat each other. Now, when you get to choose the one that you're with who fears God and your parents fear God and you're in a church where the whole counsel of God is taught, where's the bar now? Where is the bar now? It's high. Because the joy should be high. Wives in Christian marriages where Christianity is properly practiced are the best treated women on earth. Totally unlike, totally different. It looks like a different institution than Hinduism or Islam or American Indians or anyone else. We want to build up this institution God's given us. If fellowship with God in a sinless world was bad, a godly marriage must be fantastic. A boy takes a girl home to do everything he never would or could with anyone else. That's exciting. I'm so thankful to the Lord. Amen. I want us to rejoice in a great gift to us. Right. He gave us His Son, but He gave us our spouses. Right. One's eternal, spiritual, incredible. We sang about that love. It goes to the high heavens. But the other one is great too. It is temporary. It won't pass beyond the curtain of death. We'll know each other in heaven, but we won't be husband and wife. We won't really care. We'll be the sons of God in eternal inheritance.
that fadeth not away. And Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will be the, the glory of that place. Amen. And we'll celebrate the best thing we've ever celebrated together anyway. We have a manual for it. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, verses we know so well. Let's just apply them to this subject. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible is an inspired book from God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is able to make a pastor perfect so that he can deal with every subject necessary for your lives. Not that he's perfect, it's perfect. And he's able to share that with you, truly furnished unto all good works. All the good works that we've been ordained to bring forth in our lives by God's salvation of us, I'm referring back to Ephesians 2.10, we're able to do because God tells us what He wants us to do. Our God is glorious in goodness. When the Apostle Paul was worshipped in Acts chapter 14, he said, stop that! There's a God in heaven that I'm representing. And He has not left Himself without witness in the earth in that He sends rain and fruitful seasons filling your hearts with food and gladness. When you enjoy a great meal, when you enjoy a great meal with your spouse, when you enjoy your spouse, that those feelings of euphoria and pleasantness and comfort and peace and rest and security and joy and happiness are from the Lord. Right. It's a witness of His goodness. God is very good to us in so many different ways. If God invented marriage, love, and sex, only He knows how to maximize its pleasure. Any conduct different from God's Word is going to hurt you. For His rules are for you. All the drivel and twaddle of God-haters is self-destructive rebellion. Just look around at their relationships. They don't have a clue about how to get along. The Bible tells us how. Any other treatment of a spouse, anytime you do something to your spouse to get a little piece of revenge, you're doing this. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face because you're the one that's going to be hurt by it. It doesn't take them very long to figure out that they're married to a cruel monster and they can just ignore you. You hurt you more than you hurt them. Lord, help us. Don't ever let us do any of those things, Heavenly Father. That is ridiculous. Let us embrace your word on everything you have to say about marriage. Books on marital improvement by any other author are only as good as how they present the Bible. Because he's the inventor. The Bible is as relevant for marriage as it ever was. Men and women are the same today as they always were. What will you do when the Bible contradicts your habits, your thoughts, and the world's advice around you? There is no psychological or psychiatric manipulation to approach repentance. Repentance is what makes it better. Remember, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, and you can restore first love. Go back as obsessed to take care of the other person, to please them, win them, and do nice things for them as you did in the beginning. And it will revive your marriage. You don't wait for them to do it to you. That is so selfish and it doesn't work. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Go give. Remember, repent, and do the first works. It doesn't say remember, hope that they repent, and wait for them to do the first works. 
Don't do it that way. It won't work. The foundation of good marriage is fear of the Lord or there's no hope. Independent fear of God, love of Christ, commitment to the Word of God. You're going to live by this. You hate all your thoughts. You hate the world. You're going to do everything the way the Bible says. You're going to humble yourself. You're no one in comparison to anyone else. Especially if you're a wife, you're going to humble yourself and serve and love, obey and reverence your husband. It's what the Bible teaches. It works. It still works. Rebellion and stubbornness against what I'm going to teach you are like the sins of witchcraft and idolatry. Don't you resist me. It's the Word of God. It's not me. I'm going to say what's here. I'm not going to go beyond it. I'm not going to come short of it by God's help. What a manual we have. We know origins, don't we? We know origins. Where boys and girls come from. Oh, yes. We know because the Bible tells us. He made them male and female. There's no other way that you can get male and female. No other way. He made them male and female. We know where the companionship came from. It's not good for Adam, the male, to be alone. I'll make him a female that's suitable and fit and appropriate for him. And so we get a marriage out of that. We call it marriage because he called it marriage. And he brought the woman to the man. He's the matchmaker. He made it all happen. Can you imagine? Hey, bud. Wake up. I have something for you. And it's not a firehouse sub. And it's not fruit off the tree of life. It's not fruit off the tree of life either. And it's not the incarnate sonship doctrine that I would like to sit down and talk to you about. Take a peek. She's over here. What do you think? Did I do okay? Now this man had just gone through every creature that God created and given them names. And among all those creatures, there was no help found for Adam. All of a sudden, he sees what you're imagining. That is my Father in Heaven. What a gift. What an introduction. What a, what a matchmaking. We know where these things came from. We know how they fit. We know where love came from. They were just put together in an arranged marriage. Adam and Eve. Do you think God made any mistakes? Do you think she kind of liked him quickly? Do you think they had some chemistry? Do you think he kind of liked her? Now, if he knew how to name all the animals, I think he probably knew how to do everything else. That's the Garden of Eden. It's origins. It's the only way it could have happened. By the intelligent design of an infinitely intelligent, all-loving Heavenly Father in Heaven. There's obstacles to us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You think things, you've heard things, you've seen things, and we just want to get rid of all that stuff and do it God's way. We're thankful for our marriages. Our marriages are overall good. Can we make them better? Yes, we can. You know, we want everything to be a little bit better. We love marginal improvement. We want marginal improvement on God's love to us, His presence with us, His revealing Jesus Christ to us, His opening the Word of God to us. All these things that we're asking Him for over the last year is for marginal improvement. Let's give Him some marginal improvement. Can we do better? Every single one of you can do better, and I can do better. 2 Corinthians 10 tells me my job. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. I'm not going to fight you in the flesh. I'm going to fight you with God's word. 
Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Those strongholds are in your mind. Verse 5, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. My goal is to get you all obeying. And in the process of getting there, I'm going to have to pull down some habits, some traditions, some ideas, some thoughts that you have that you shouldn't have so that you can be fully conformed to the Word of God. Your imagination, get rid of it. Every high thing that thinks that you know better than God, get rid of it. Bring every thought into captivity to God's Word with me. With me. Let's all do it together. You learn to walk and talk by your parents. Do you know that? You learn to walk and talk by imitating your parents. You also learned a lot about marriage from them. And most of them were losers when it came to a biblical marriage. But God, the Bible, and your spouse do not care how your parents had a marriage. Flush it. Simple or rebellious people think that their parents are the measure of good. To be a Bible Christian, you must flush anything contrary to the written Scripture. Each marriage, we're talking about the obstacles to doing this right. It's parental influence is one. Second, each marriage in a few days and weeks falls into habits and routines, often for the duration. Hate habits, unless they are clearly taught in the Bible and learned by holy faith. Hate habits. Because you have always done something some way is no reason to keep doing it. What if it's wrong? You're messing up your own life and you're messing up the spouse's life, your children's life, and our church's life. Stop habits and routines. Peer pressure by the world, friends, church, family, or Oprah to set the standard for your marriage. That kind of peer pressure is garbage. Bitterness in your heart by unresolved offenses is a roadblock from healthy confession, forgiveness, and going forward in love. Unfettered love. Unmitigated love. Pride keeps a person from humbly repenting to change and probably will send you to hell. That's the sin of the devil. Why can't you repent? You're too proud. Say you're sorry. Say it twice. Say you're stupid. Say I'm rebellious. I'm a fool. I'm an odious woman. I'm a terrible husband. Just get it out there. Get it over with. Marriage wasn't invented by a few cavemen sitting around a campfire and hallucinating about monogamy. They wouldn't have hallucinated quite that way. Because they were wicked men, natural men. They would have been hallucinating an invention that was contrary to God's word and would just bring trouble. God saw the need for companionship, invented two sexes, marriage, love, and sex. He knows more about every single little detail of both spouses than you can imagine. To ignore his rules and wisdom is to put two proud animals in a cage and let them fight. Marriage is good. Genesis 2.18 Marriage is good. It's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Help us make it all that it should be. Forgive us 
where we have neglected our spouse. Forgive us where we haven't practiced biblical Christianity in this part of our lives. Marriage is good. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. When the Lord God, Jehovah, you know the one I preached this morning, the burning bush God, when that God says it is not good for the man to be alone, do you know that his cure is going to be pretty good? Let's think about it. Was his cure decent for Abraham's dead reproductive system? How good? He kept... Listen, he had Isaac with Sarah. Sarah lived another 37 years, and Sarah died, and the next month he was in Christian Mingle. Abraham. Oh yeah. He was in Christian Mingle, got himself a woman named Keturah, had six more children by Keturah. When our God does something, He does it well. How about the man that was lame at the gate called Beautiful of the Temple in Acts chapters 3 and 4. When he was healed, how long did he have to use a wheelchair? How long did he have to use a walker? What model of a cane did he use? He leaped and ran. I want you to think, when God said what He said in Genesis 2.18, was the solution decent? Good or very good? The way God uses words. Very good. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And the Lord God said, that is, and Jehovah God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Holding your hand there, look at Ruth chapter 3. First and second Sam, Judges, Joshua Judges Ruth. I'm not going to be able to find it myself. Joshua Judges Ruth, then first and second Samuel. It's a small book written about a woman who became a wife. Then she lost her husband. She came, became a wife again. And she is the great, great grandmother of David. And she is the great, great, great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though she was a Moabitess. Ruth 3.1 Then Naomi... Her mother-in-law said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Though Naomi and Ruth got along perfectly, there's something far better than Naomi for Ruth. And the something far better for Ruth was Boaz. And I, I want you to just look at those words, that it may be well with thee. Marriage is a good thing. And we're taking it right out of Genesis 2.18. It was not a good thing for Adam to have God alone. God realized, even in a sinless world, before the fall, that for Adam to have a helper, sort of like the animals that Adam had seen pair up, he would have a helper. Someone to be with him. And so the Lord created him a wife. I've already read to you Ecclesiastes 9.9 that we should live joyfully with the wife of our youth that God has given to us to enjoy this great gift. When When God says something is good, it should carry enormous weight with a Christian. 
The fact that some marriages have hellish pain is not the fault of God or of marriage. It's their fault. If your marriage is bad, it's your fault. Not God's, not marriages, and not your spouse's. You have a problem. Get over it. If your husband... I won't even go there. While some have been exceptions by choosing to be units for the kingdom of heaven's sake, like John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul, they are not the norm. It starts with the man. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Who's in the world right now at this point? One person. It is a man's world. Period. Not up for discussion. Not up for debate. It hasn't changed. It was a man's world. God invented marriage when He saw that it was not good for a man to be alone. Though the woman does benefit by marriage, Ruth 3.1, I just showed it to you, she must keep this priority. This is a priority of a godly marriage. The wife's duty is to make her husband happy, and that is more of a priority than for her to be happy. She is to satisfy his loneliness and to be his companion. This order of creation established a basic premise of marriage. It is for the man. It's not because I'm a man. It's because the Bible says so. It was a man's world. It was Adam's world. He needs a helper. That's where marriage came from. She is to help the man. And a woman that gets up in the morning and has other plans and thinks that she is going to amount to something on her own, outside of helping her man be what he should be, is corrupting the institution of marriage, and it will not work. It will fail and falter, and you will not be as happy as you could be as if you were doting on that man and helping him be all that he could be and should be. This is God's order for it. This order of creation is so powerful and weighty that the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, reasons from it and says the woman was of the man because she was made from his rib and the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Now that is just plain language and it's very harsh for our society today because it is so politically correct and so effeminate that men have to apologize for the sex God made them and for the office God expects them to hold. But we're not going to apologize here. I want all of our marriages to be great. And it is centered around the man. Just like the church is centered around Jesus Christ. That in all things, He might have the preeminence. It is not that in all things the church might have the preeminence, but that Jesus has the preeminence. And Ephesians chapter 5 is very strict that the two do compare to each other very well. Paul reasoned about men and women in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. The woman ought to have long hair on her head to show that she is under subjection to this man who is the glory of God, who, who is the glory of Christ and the glory of God. The woman is the glory of the man when she is subordinate and has long hair and lives like it. She submits to him. She knows her place. That is 1 Corinthians 11 from this one little verse. Then, 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul argues it again, that women should be silent in the church based on two reasons. The first reason being, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Just that order of creation tells us that the woman should be quiet. Men should talk. In the church especially, men talk. The women are commanded to be under silence. Because Adam was first formed, then Eve. 1 Timothy 2.13, very easy to understand. Then it says in verse 14, because the women, the woman blew it. Eve blew it when Satan came around. And Genesis chapter 3 will deal with that. There's a further degree of subjection because she showed her weakness toward false doctrine. But Paul gave those two reasons in 1 Timothy 2. So when we start right here, one of the first things we notice is that marriage is for the man. No man ought to feel apologetic for what I'm saying right now. No woman should feel resentful. This is God's Word. You already agreed with me before we got started that you're going to rip your strongholds down and tear out your imaginations and make them conform to God's Word. Everything works best when we do it God's way. In a day and a time where women go off to college, some of them, not off, but to college, and they're flattered because that's what education is all about. A ton of flattery. It is totally unlike the workforce. No one's going to flatter you in the workforce unless you are making them a lot of money and you don't make anybody money when you're in school except by paying a teacher to flatter you. It's a totally different environment. It's always been that way. And you're not wise if you don't understand that. That plays with women's minds. They are told over and over again, you have a great gift. Do you know what their great gift is? According to God's Word, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, they can love God serve Christ, be a wife, and have children. But they get flattered enough about their gift. All of a sudden, their own the development of their own life, the development of their own profession, starts to creep in and steal away their heart and conviction about the duties they have toward their husband to make his career and his profession the main career and profession of the family. It's a threat that we have against us, and we've got to be very careful about it. A wife should start each day and set all of her priorities on this simple but profound fact out of Genesis 2.18 that she's to be a helper of the man because it's a man's world and she is in the marriage to help him. He's not in the marriage to help her. Now he's going to love her because we're going to get to that as well. She's bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. I'm going to, uh, we're going to love our wives the way that we're supposed to in the Word of God. Right. You know, a woman gets up in the morning that has children And she expects her children to regard the same thing about her. She expects her children to set a priority that her desire and her will for their lives is more important than their will and thought of what they're going to do that day. Every woman already does it to her children. You say, well, I'm not a child compared to my husband. Well, when it comes to God establishing the priorities of the marriage, in a way you are for this comparison. Just humble yourself and make your husband the key, the object of the marriage. You know, when the husband comes home from work, the wife ought to run out there and, and hug her quarterback who's just thrown for a touchdown. You say, well, maybe he didn't throw one that day. Hug him anyway so he can do it tomorrow. Right. It, 
it should be it should be directed toward daddy it should be directed toward husband because that's what the bible says so we start right off with this fundamental simple fact and i know i haven't made very much progress today this is so important right a wife that doesn't get this is going to be frustrated what about my life what about my career what about it make it serve your husband's interests make it serve your husband's needs you know a husband goes and does this every day when he goes to work he knows that the workplace is about the shareholders about the board of directors and about the officers of the company and he is there to serve them every man does it if he doesn't work for a corporation like that it's the customers he serves if there's if if a if a man that owns his own business has a customer he does everything for that customer he is respectful to that customer he does the best job that he can he charges the fairest price that he can a, a man does it this is god's word for marriage just getting started this has nothing to do with male chauvinism or other man-made terms of rebellion there is an orderly way for all of society to function together for maximum profit and right. god's written the manual on it and this is for marriage a husband and wife maximize profit and pleasure when they understand this fact that she was made for him he wasn't made for her do you know that that verse is in the bible exactly that way the man was not made for the woman but the woman for the man there is a severe difference between the two in god's sight not when it comes to salvation 1 Peter 3.7 says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. There is no male or female in Jesus Christ when it comes to redemption right. and our eternity in heaven. But when it comes to our functioning in a marriage, the difference is huge. She was made for him. He was not made for her. And this is foundational and fundamental and very important to keep it in mind. A good man, when he gets up every morning and he walks into his office, a good man will tell his boss that. I am here to serve you. Anything you want or need, I will do it for you. I do not need any credit. I want to make you great in this company. Some of you may have never done this in your lives. I've done it. It's so basic and fundamental. They gave me a chance. They hired me to work for them. I, so I was, I was created to serve them. I'm going to do anything I can to promote them. Now, if I happen to be holding on to a coattail really tight and I help get them promoted, then I'm going to get drug along with them. But that's not the chief thought. The chief thought is I'm here to serve I'm going to serve. And a woman should get up every morning. I want to make my husband the best man today. The best man in the sight of God. The best man in the sight of men at work. The best man in the sight of my children. I'm going to adore him, encourage him, comfort him, praise him. Let me just list a few things about the differences that God sees between two sexes and how the marriage is for the man. Some of this will be hard for you to bear. The children of the man's. 
It doesn't matter if the woman conceives them, gestates them, and births them. The children are always the man's. No matter the child care that she puts into them, the child goes to the man's family tree. Her monetary value in Leviticus 27 is far less than the man's monetary value, where God had a poll tax, meaning a head tax, meaning a personal tax. Leviticus 27. A husband can reject a woman's vows to God for any reason that he chooses, and they are null and void. Even though she made a vow to God of a free will offering to God, there's a whole chapter about this. It's Numbers chapter 30. A husband can disannul it. There are at least five facts that prove a different object of sexual faithfulness. Men are sexually faithful to God. God, Christ, man, wife. The man is sexually responsible to God for his faithfulness. The woman is responsible to God as well, but she's responsible to her husband. Let me prove it these quick ways. She's created anatomically in such a way that she can be proven whether she's a virgin or not. Men have no such thing. She's the one that gets pregnant. Men don't get pregnant from fornication. God allowed polygamy. Never even came close to anything called polyandry. There was a test of jealousy for husbands to have for their wives, and there is no such thing for a woman to have about her husband. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31 describes the test, test of jealousy. If a woman, trying to defend her husband who's in a fight with another man, touches the other man's secret parts in an effort to try to get him off her husband, her hand was to be cut off without pity. Now, if you don't like what I just read to you from a King James Bible, then you need to go find a church that reads the Koran. This is, this is God's will in the Word of God. God ridicules odious wives repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, doesn't even mention such a man. The virtuous woman who is the hardest working woman, Proverbs 31 emphasizes her diligence more than any other character factor. The virtuous woman only gets a portion of her own earnings to use from her husband. All said in Proverbs 31 and verse 31, give her of the fruit of her hands. Don't give her the fruit of her hands, give her of the fruit of her hands. That list that I just went through was to demonstrate from the Bible that God wants marriage centered toward the man like the church centers everything toward Christ. You don't like hearing some of the things. I don't like preaching some of the things, but I know it's true, so I like it anyway. I want to do everything I can to take care of my wife. I love to pamper her. I love to, to do nice things for her. But her role is to be my helper. That's the God-given role. Every one of you women, the rest of this day, tonight when you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, you need to get up in the morning. What can I do for my husband? How can I make him better today? How can I make him greater today? Don't get sidetracked with your children. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. Much more to say on that. God did not make Eve a mother. God made Eve a wife. That relationship with a child is 20 years long and they're gone. We celebrate 50-year anniversaries. Leon and Francis are going to have one in June. 50-year anniversary. We celebrate 50-year anniversaries, but if there's a 50-year-old man still at home, we got a problem. I mean, they're supposed to be gone by 20. 
It's a short-term, temporary relationship. Your real relationship's with your husband. Don't you dote on those kids. You dote on your husband. Do it God's way. If your marriage isn't giving you great pleasure and rest, you're wrong somewhere. It can be corrected. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember. Repent. Do the first works. What did you used to do to win her? You were obsessed. You always had time. You always had surprises. You always had a kind word. She always looked awesome. Uh, everything was positive. Everything was encouraging. Everything was loving. I'm talking about the husband to the wife at the moment. She, was, she always looked her best. She was on her best behavior. Do the first works again, folks. What's the problem? Why isn't your marriage happy? Your spouse? Your spouse cannot ruin your pleasure and rest if your portion is with God and you are giving. All of you women, I've noticed you at times because I had a mother and I had a wife and I've seen other women. You women will take a little baby that's just had a blowout. I hate saying this in a pulpit. I mean has had a blowout. There's a new kind of asphalt contributed to the earth. And that mother will stand there and wipe it all up and just take care of that little thing that's going to do it again within two hours. And just keep doing it. That little thing can scream all night, and there comes mommy. Now you can dote, and I'm not going to describe a child, because my vocabulary is filling my mind right now with all kinds of words, but you can dote on that. Surely you can dote on a husband. That child's not giving anything back. Well, yes, he is, but you have to throw it away 8 to 12 times a day. The child's not giving anything back, but you really get into your job. I've seen some of you dab at that thing, that it's so clean you could slide jello all around its body and eat it without a thought of anything contaminating. You are meticulous. You are meticulously careful and the child doesn't give anything back except another one in a couple of hours, doesn't let you sleep, screams at night. 